you know, I hear like limiting beliefs. People say, oh, I'm going to miss. No, no, you're not. You really won't. You will feel so empowered that you can get up in the morning, get your kids squared away, get your husband squared away, whatever your life circumstances are, go to the gym, get your errands done, sit down and start work. And you don't have to worry about eating. Just keep yourself hydrated. Have some green tea, have some black coffee, have some water. That's all you have to worry about. And then when you break your fast, you have a really good meal. And then, you know, you maybe you have a second meal before you go to bed and that's your day. It's like your day is not spent thinking about food, which is just such a a wonderful way to live your life. is Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast, and I am your host, Bette Lucas. I am a mom of six crazy kids, I work as a VP in a fast-paced industry, and I've been on a health journey. But what does living your big, bold life even mean? Living boldly is having the courage to finally listen and do what your heart has been trying to tell you all along. Maybe it's to take back your health, write the book, go for the job, run the race. And I'm here to help you listen to that voice and to remind you to be you boldly. The world needs you. Hello, welcome to Living Your Big Bold Life Podcast. I am your host, Bette Lucas. Today, I have the extreme honor of welcoming Cynthia Thurlow, who is truly considered an expert in the intermittent fasting arena. Before we get started today, I wanted to share with you a little bit about the word time. Last week, I shared with many of my followers about a moment in time that I had. It was a last-minute trip to Mexico, and I had let my health fall too far down the priority list, and I knew it. However, I had no idea how I was going to fix it or when. I mean, with what extra time? I had no extra time. And most of you don't have any extra time. But what I shared with my friends last week was that it was my time. And maybe today is your time. And yes, when you're starting something new and learning about it, it does take time. But guess what? You ironically get it back and more. And I know you have those same questions that I did back then. How, when, what? And I'm hopeful that maybe for some of you, today's episode just might answer some of those questions. We are going to talk all things intermittent fasting. We're going to dive into questions like, What is intermittent fasting? How do you start? How do you improve your longevity? And then more complex ones like, what do you do if you're carb addicted? What do you do if you're hit a plateau? Are pre-workouts necessary? Today's episode may just give you back what I was looking for all along, time. You see, intermittent fasting saves you time. It is not like the diet plans of the past where you're constantly counting things, packing things, worrying about all the snacks. No, it has simplified my life and I think it may just simplify yours. And there you go, my friends. Maybe there you found it. You just found some time. And truly in a world where many of us feel like we can't ever find the time, maybe 
you just found something that did just that. Cynthia Thurlow is a globally recognized expert in nutrition and intermittent fasting. She's a highly sought-after speaker, CEO, and founder of the Everyday Wellness Project. She's been a nurse practitioner for 20-plus years and is a two-times TED Talk speaker. Her second talk on intermittent fasting has been viewed over 7.5 million times. She's also the host of the Everyday Wellness Podcast, which was listed as 20 podcasts that will help you grow in 2020 by Entrepreneur Magazine. I'm truly honored to have Cynthia's time today because as we discussed earlier, it truly is one of the greatest gifts. Here's Cynthia. Cynthia, I'm thrilled to have you on Living Your Big Bold Life podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, I've been looking forward to this. Thank you so much for having me. So many of you know Cynthia from her infamous and wildly popular TED Talk that she did on fasting. And it has received over seven and a half million views. And since then, many of you have continued to follow her, whether it's on her podcast or her Everyday Wellness Project. And today I am thrilled to be diving into the exciting topic of intermittent fasting with her. And as many of you know, we tackle this topic in many different ways on Big Bold Life Podcast, and how better to dive in even deeper with an expert like Cynthia Thurlow. So welcome, Cynthia. Before we dive into intermittent fasting, can you tell the listeners a little bit more about you? And You know, most people don't anticipate if they hear a little bit about my background, they always are curious to know a little bit how circuitously I managed to be where I am today. Well, I am a traditionally allopathic trained nurse practitioner. I first worked as a nurse in the emergency room in Baltimore, and Baltimore to this day remains a very special place in my heart. And I relocated to the Washington, D.C. area after meeting my husband and uh, you know, continued my path in cardiology as a nurse practitioner. I love everything about the heart, and I find the heart in- just intrinsically absolutely fascinating but over the course of you know a 16 career in car- 16 year career in cardiology i managed to get married i had uh, two i have two boys who are now teenagers so i'm at a different stage of the game than you are but i grew increasingly disillusioned with the kind of traditional mindset of thinking that every symptom we have needs to be treated with a pharmaceutical drug and i became intrinsically very interested in nutrition largely because my oldest son, when he was four months old, who was exclusively breastfed and was a very, very healthy, big baby, happy baby, uh, developed terrible eczema. And the kind of traditional mindset about addressing eczema is that you give adults or children or infants for that matter, high potency topical steroids. And you know, initially that didn't bother me, but it did bother me when this, his eczema continued. And I kept asking the pediatrician and I had a course researched all the local pediatricians and absolutely positively had the best person for us. And I kept inquiring, could it be something I'm eating? And you know, she respectfully said, no, I don't think it has anything to do with what you're eating. And you know, just give him this, you know, the topical steroids, they'll calm everything down, it'll be better. And it didn't get better. And my otherwise very healthy child who was hitting every milestone and was just, you know, gaining weight and was doing well continued with this eczema. And and to make a very long story short, 
I insisted that he get allergy testing. So when he was about 18 months old, uh, we took him to the al- pediatric allergist who was wonderful and agreed with having him tested. And I thought it was going to be something benign, like, oh, he has a sensitivity to berries. This is how naive I was. It turns out my child had life-threatening food allergies, uh, including things to, like tree nuts and peanuts. And of course, I was consuming both of these things while pregnant, while breastfeeding, uh, you know, at the time you, you were encouraged not to give your child peanut butter, uh, even when they were infants or toddlers. And I'm grateful that I didn't, but that really started my journey about questioning how benign food was thought to be in our, uh, you know, day-to-day lives. And so initially it stemmed an interest in just doing a voluminous amount of reading. There was a book called the unhealthy truth by Robin O'Brien that changed my entire life. And that dove me down the rabbit hole of, do I want to get a doctoral degree? Uh, do I want to become a wellness coach? Uh, and then I happened upon a woman who wrote a book called Eat the Yolks. And that is another book that really changed my trajectory of my career. And so I went on and did a functional nutrition program. And that really opened up my eyes. And you know, there were 30 of us in this program, five of whom were healthcare providers, and every single one of us just kept in awe. We were looking around at one another, just saying, I can't believe I was never taught any of this. And so it completely spun everything I'd ever thought about food and nutrition on its head. And, you know, I continued to practice for a few years after that. And my husband, God bless him, was <laughs> open minded <laughs> enough to listen to my rants about this and that and seed oils and gluten and all these different things. And I just woke up one day and I looked at my husband and I said, "Um, I don't want to do this anymore. I cannot go to work, continue writing prescriptions, knowing that the people that I'm trying to care for would be best served if we could get them to change the way they're eating, change their lifestyles. And I knew at that point, well, what I should say is I knew at that point I needed to make a change. I was fortunate enough to be in a position where my husband has a very good job and I I could do that. Uh, But also, I felt very confident that no matter what direction I went in next, I would be very successful. And so here I am, top-notch trained nurse practitioner, very, very good at what I did, taking this massive leap of faith into the entrepreneurial world. And I kind of landed, I think, exactly where I was meant to be. I started serving women in a different way. You know, every client that came to me or a person who came to me interested in uh, group programs or the like were people that are about my age struggling with the same things I was starting to struggle with. And I think it's very humbling when you're a healthcare provider and you start having, you know, minor health issues yourself because all of a sudden you realize you need someone to help you figure it all out. So in a very long trajectory, I went from a traditionally trained nurse practitioner to functional training to being very interested in food. And the last arc of that story that I want to share with your listeners is that the year after, so this would have been um, 2015 timeframe, that was around the time that I got acquainted with intermittent fasting. And at that time, there weren't a ton of people talking about it and sure as heck not talking about it much on social media. And initially, I just did it for myself and I felt so much better And this turned everything I'd ever learned on its head, much like the nutrition piece. And then I started incorporating the work into things that I did with my clients, uh, talking about it with girlfriends. And then lastly, uh, you know, being an introvert, I decided that I wanted to um, do more public speaking. That was always something I enjoyed doing. And that kind of got me to the point where I did a couple TED Talks. 
uh, talking about topics I knew a lot about, was very comfortable talking about. And again, you know, as luck would have it, that changed the trajectory of everything. It's kind of like I hit an accelerator break, uh, accelerator gas pedal in 2018, and then, and then everything started to fall into place. So that's a little bit about how I got to where I am. I'm married. I have two boys that are teenagers now, and uh, you know, they they continue to be, I would say, awe inspired and sometimes horrified because occasionally they're they're personal lives, although I'm very respectful about it, show up on social media. As they've gotten older, I've had to be more and more careful about what information I do share because now they're young, they're nearly young men. And I'm very, very grateful that social media has allowed me to connect with so many amazing people, including you and your podcast, which I know does such a tremendous service for women and families everywhere. Well, I love your story, because I think that so many people are impacted when they see someone like you who says, I'm, I'm a healthcare professional and I am seeing stuff that I want to change. And I could see that you felt that very strongly. And then you put yourself out there and you said, I'm going to start sharing this on a greater stage per se and in a literal stage. You're like, I'm going to put myself out there and I'm going to share. So tell us about the final arc now. That's what we're going to dive into, which is intermittent fasting. So you had tried intermittent fasting back in 2015. You'd start here. You started to hear about it. Tell us about, for those people that haven't heard your TED talk, tell us about what is intermittent fasting and why you think it is so important for everyone to hear about. Thank you. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the aspects of intermittent fasting that is so appealing to me intellectually is that this is the way our bodies are designed to thrive. We are not designed to be eating mini meals and eating and snacking throughout the day. And I've been witness to such tremendous shifts in uh, health and wellness over the last 20 plus years of, of being in healthcare that for me, initially, what really appealed to me just from a selfish perspective was that, wow, um, if I do this, I might lose a little bit of weight, I might have more mental clarity. But the easiest way to explain intermittent fasting is that it is eating less often. It is really all about fueling your body in such a way that your body starts using stored fat to fuel your body as opposed to burning off carbohydrates. And what a lot of us don't realize when we're eating frequently and eating mini meals, and I think the last statistic I saw was the average American consumes a sugar-sweetened beverage or food 16 to 17 times a day, what that does from a metabolic flexibility perspective, meaning you go from being someone that fuels your body on ketones and fat to not being able to access that stored energy. And really just, it's almost like you're, you're skating across the surface. You know, Jason Fung does a really beautiful job talking about, and he works in analogies, which, you know, for most of us really appeal. When we open up the refrigerator, what's easily accessible are the carbohydrates. What is harder to get to is what's frozen. And so if you think about it that way, that if we're eating frequently, we're just doing the quick carbs. We're just grab and go, grab and go all the time. We don't ever actually get to access the stored fats. And that's where fasting comes in. It's, it's all about when we're not eating all the metabolic impact, positive metabolic impact 
that we tap into intrinsically when we are not eating that is really what drives a lot of the benefits that we get from intermittent fasting. So people come to it because they're cons- they they want to lose weight. They're curious, you know, it's it's not a get quick fix kind of situation, which is what we've been conditioned to really focus on, pills and potions and powders. Instead, you learn about a sustainable strategy that you can do without throughout your lifetime and what I find for many many people is that what keeps them doing intermittent fasting is the mental clarity because their insulin levels are low because they're not eating. You know, they're improved biophysical markers. All of a sudden their blood pressure is better. Their their glucose, their insulin, their triglycerides are all better because they're eating less often. They sleep better. They, you know, have spikes in human growth hormones. So they're able to build lean muscle or maintain their muscle. They, you know, decrease the likelihood of developing neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's and specifically will reduce the likelihood of developing certain types of cancer. So when I think about intermittent fasting, like I always say, everyone comes for the for the, the weight loss, but they stay for all the other benefits. And so from an ancestral health perspective, this is the way our bodies are designed to thrive. We are not designed to be like old clunker cars that we get to be middle age and we start falling apart. And I think on so many levels, you know, when I started in healthcare in my 20s, I used to see people in their 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond and almost without question, I would see people start complaining about knee pain and joint pain and weight gain and poor sleep. And we've unfortunately kind of subscribed to these limiting beliefs that these are all a natural progression of aging, and yet they don't need to be. And one of the ways that you can improve your longevity and the way you feel and the way you interact with your environment is to fast and to just eat less often. And I think once most people are in a position that they're doing this regularly, it just becomes a part of their lifestyle. And it's it's this beautiful domino effect. I feel like when I look at men and women that I've coached through this process, uh, it, it bleeds into like every aspect of their lives. They have more energy, so they want to be more physically active. They have more, you know, they're sleeping better, so they're able to provide more uh, you know, quality time to their loved ones, their children, maybe their parents, um, you know, their, their family and friends. I know with COVID, we, we are, we're, all of our worlds have gotten a little smaller, but I feel like we're, we're just better human beings when we're eating less often. And so obviously it's all on a case by case basis. There are certainly certain times in our lives when we shouldn't fast, but overall I do find it to be a, a particularly effective strategy. And as powerful as the medications I used to prescribe to my patients. I mean, that's how absolutely important this strategy is. And and more and more of us are talking about it. I'm so proud that more healthcare providers are talking about it and taking a platform and taking a stand against kind of antiquated dogma about the, the nonsense of, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day and you have to eat every two to three hours to stoke your metabolism and all sorts of other nonsense that we know is completely... Uh, not true. Well, you know, I was fascinated. I was reading today, and there's all different statistics, but that the what is considered one of the peaks of obesity was in the 90s when we went from like 12% to almost 18% of obese population. And ironically, that was the time when most of us were listening to the low calorie, low fat, 
you know, packaged food uh, messaging that we were told. And like you said, we were all pursuing skinny. Mm-hmm. You know, we were we were pursuing that that lose weight, thin, thin, thin. And I think you hit the nail on the head is that intermittent fasting kind of changes your whole mindset because all of a sudden it's like you're pursuing health. And if you have weight to lose, that can be a side effect of pursuing this this new, healthy new strategy. But it's so different than those short term, you know, hey, let's do this for a week. And we the skills looks, you know, hey, oh, we like the results, but it all comes back and more. And I think you're exactly right. It just bleeds into so many other areas of our lives in a positive way. Absolutely. And if you really look at the historical perspectives on what really shifted us from eating real food, you know, butter and beef and eggs. It was really the 1950s. It was Ansel Keys and his very cherry-picked data that persuaded so many Americans to shun fat and to consume more quote unquote heart healthy grains. And that was really the uh, you know, the segue into this low-fat, non-fat dogma that that was really mm-hmm. perpetuated. I mean, I graduated college in the 90s. And I remember my roommate and I would buy no fat cheese, which is just so disgusting to even (laughs) think about now. I'm like, oh my gosh, it didn't even, it literally would barely melt. I mean, it didn't even look melt, look like a, a pool of oil. But that's when we got terribly off track as a society. Because the issue is when you take fat out of something, there's no satiety. You know, you don't feel full. And if you don't feel full, or satisfied, you're not going to stop eating. And so a lot of these low-fat, non-fat products really pushed people into eating more and more carbohydrate-focused meals and got us terribly derailed. I mean, if you look at the the way things have changed in between the advent of high fructose corn syrup and seed oils, there's so many ingredients that are in you know the food supply that have really contributed to a society that is incredibly unhealthy uh, most of whom are, are overweight or obese, and, and they're suffering from the effects of these metabolic diseases. And it doesn't have to be that way. That's that's the the message that I always like to share is that I cannot tell you how many people I've interacted with that have turned their lives around just by fasting. And fasting doesn't cost you anything. In fact, you'll probably have lower food bills if you fast because you're not going to have to worry about three meals a day. Obviously, if you have kids or teenagers like I do, <laughs> my, my bills <laughs> right. just continue to rise. They don't get any <laughs> smaller. But I think that it's an important kind of distinction to share with the listeners that you know fasting in many ways costs very little, and yet you the the rewards are pretty tremendous. Yeah, and as a someone who hates the word busy, but I do feel like I am a busy mom. You know, I work full time. I have six kids under 10 and my life is very full with the podcast and many of my my passions. And I always tell other people who feel overwhelmed with time that it is one of the best ways to also save you time. I have found in so many ways, it just simplifies my life. And in an era where we're all being inundated with trying to find ways to make more time, it's been one of the biggest gifts for me in that regard because you know I used to do all this food prep and I used to stress out did you ever do this Cynthia where I'd be driving to the airport for traveling for work or I'd be driving you know to an appointment and I'd be stressed out thinking oh I haven't had anything to eat this morning mm-hmm. I better get something to eat what are my snacks for my road trip what are my snacks for the plane and and it's kind of like you're alleviated of all of that 
Yes. And I think, you know, one of the beautiful things pre-COVID, I have to put that distinction in there because I, <laughs> right. I traveled a lot for business pre-COVID. And I remember saying like, there was nothing better than getting on a flight and realizing I didn't have to partake in any of the crappy food that they were doling out on an airplane or worry about the crappy food in the airport, because let's be real, most of what's there is crap. Totally. And, and let me let me just backtrack and say, I'm a realist. So I get, I get it. Sometimes that's your only option. And, and you have to, it's always good, better, best. But I could just fast until I got to my destination. And then when I got to my destination, I could decide what I wanted to do. You know, if I wanted to go have, you know, a bunless burger, if I was out on the West Coast, and I, you know, would jump on to getting immediately get trying to get on to West Coast time coming from the East Coast. And so there, there there's so many amazing things, like not having to worry about that extra meal is incredibly empowering. And so I always say when, you know, I hear like limiting beliefs, people say, Oh, I'm gonna miss no, no, you're not. You really won't. You will feel so empowered that you can get up in the morning, get your kids squared away, get your husband squared away, whatever your life circumstances are, go to the gym, get your errands done, sit down and start work. And you don't have to worry about eating. Just keep yourself hydrated, have some green tea, have some black coffee, have some water. That's all you have to worry about. And then when you break your fast, you have a really good meal. And then, you know, you maybe you have a second meal before you go to bed. And that's your day. It's like your day is not spent thinking about food, which is just such a a wonderful way to live your life as opposed to when I was very much in my heyday. And and let me be really clear. I was one of those, you know, uh, before I left clinical medicine, I would go to the gym very early in the morning. I would drink a protein shake to the going to the gym. I drink a protein shake going to the hospital after showering. And then I would, you know, be having my mini meals, how I managed to do that. I do not know. I would be eating every two or three hours because that's what I was told I needed to do. And when I started fasting, I was like, oh my God, this is fantastic. I don't have to worry about anything until lunchtime. And that was like this huge weight lifted off my shoulders. I was like, how nice is this? Exactly. And then Cynthia, do you find with people that first come on to intermittent fasting and they're talking to you, they have this fear of also not feeling satiated, not feeling like they're going to eat well. And what's ironic to me is I feel like I've never had such good food in my life until mm-hmm. I implemented in intermittent fasting because, like you said, I started to eat real again. Mm-hmm. I started to not search out my you know non-fat foods, my low-calorie foods, and I started to say, no, what's just real food? What's good protein, good fats, whatever you want to, what vegetables you want to eat, whatever. But I was eating so much more real and therefore, like you said, so much more satiated. Does that surprise some of your clients that all of a sudden they're like, wow, I I thought I would hate this this lifestyle, but actually I'm eating so much better. I'm feeling satiated. Yeah. No. And I think that brings up a really good point. When people are going from snacks and mini meals to progressing to three meals and then progressing to two meals, really teaching people about satiety. When they can eat real butter, when they can eat um, you know, a beautiful steak, when they can have avocado in their salad and nuts and things like that, they're so they're you know, your taste buds light up, you feel so much more nourished. And that is always a surprise for people, especially if they've been anti-fat or they've been very worried about fats. I mean, that's been a huge challenge for me from, you know, when I started in medicine until now, I still have a good segment of women that really are fat phobic. And it's not anything, it's not an eating disorder. It's what they have been conditioned to believe for such a long period of time that they really struggle trying to dispel what they have been taught. And so 
that for me is sometimes kind of a sad realization. But I do feel that when we talk about restructuring meals, you know, focused on animal protein and predominantly animal protein and healthy fats, people don't feel like snacking in between meals. They're too full and not full in an uncomfortable way. They're like satisfied full. Like the, today when I broke my fast, uh, before we, we started to connect, uh, I had bacon and eggs and I had a little bit of avocado. And so I had plenty of animal protein, plenty of healthy fats, feel completely fantastic. You know, I'm going to power through this podcast with you. And then I'll go, you know, I'm going to be doing some recordings this afternoon. And then, you know, usually my biggest meal is my midday meal. And then, you know, usually at dinner time I'll sit down with my kids. But, you know, the satiety piece is there. I don't think about food again until dinner time. And that to me is really important. I love that you highlight your midday meal because I think sometimes people think there's only one way to do it and Mm -hmm. it has to be you have to eat dinner or you have to eat this way. And I found a lot of success with a midday window Mm -hmm. that really worked well for me for my biggest meal. And then sometimes I would close my window or sometimes I would have like a lighter dinner. So I love that you share that. So when someone comes to you and they're wanting to start intermittent fasting, what fasting window do you recommend to most people? I realize there's always going to be caveats, but what's your favorite place to start? Well, if someone is really coming from a place where they've been eating a lot of mini meals and snacking, we typically start with removing the snacks. Mm-hmm. Then we progress to, you know, maybe they're eating, closing their feeding window at 6 p.m. at night when they finish dinner and they don't eat until 8 a.m. in the morning. And so they're starting with a 14 hour window. It really depends. A lot of people struggle in the evenings. And I would say, particularly, given the way our, our last year has been with this pandemic and COVID and social distancing, a lot of people are home. And so there are a lot of snackers in the evening. So I say first step, stop snacking. You know, when you close your feeding window, when you finish your dinner, that's really when you don't eat again until breakfast the next day. So they may start with a 13 or a 14 hour window. And I'm generally very happy that people start there and make it sustainable. So if they're doing well with a 13, 14 hour window, we start opening up in 30 minute increments my happy place that I like people to aim for is a 16-8. So 16 hours fasted with an eight-hour feeding window to start. And then once they've mastered that, then I have other strategies that we like to use. But that is that is generally a good place to start. But I find if someone's really carbohydrate addicted, maybe they're coming from being a couch potato and eating a standard American diet, it may take them six to eight weeks to get to a point where they have switched over from primarily burning glucose to burning ketones or fats. And I just remind people, we're all on our own path. There's no comparisons. Uh, you know, if I have 150 people in a, in a group program in a masterclass, I would say a third are there within a couple weeks. I always have, a you know, there's usually another third of people who are struggling even after four weeks to be fat adapted. And I always say, listen, we have to respect our bodies in time and space. The more carbohydrate addicted someone is, and most Americans are, the longer it is going to take. You know, that's that's the the withdrawal symptoms that people will experience. And I'm not anti-carb. I want to be very specific about that. I like carbohydrates. I just like people to use smart carbohydrates. So, you know, it's all about bioindividuality, finding what works best for you and your body, being kind to yourself, giving yourself grace. That is really, really critical and important because, you know, sometimes people will join a group program with three or four friends and they're always comparing themselves. Well, so-and-so was able to get to 16-8 like a duck to water. I'm like, that's great. That's their story. Let's, what's your story? You know, how can we better support you? And I find for a lot of people, 
being able to be properly satiated and being able to fast longer has more to do with the meals that they prepare for themselves. So maybe they break their fast with something small and then eat a second meal, maybe an hour or two later. And that's their most satiating meal of the day. And then they eat something smaller at the end of the day. You know, one thing that's important to to mention is we become less insulin sensitive as the day goes on. So if you're going to have carbohydrates, whether it's low glycemic berries, non-starchy vegetables, a sweet potato, et cetera, you know, midday when your body is better able to tap into the intrinsic properties of insulin, insulin's that, that hormone that allows your body to move uh, sugar within the bloodstream into cells. It has a lot of other functions, but that's an oversimplification. Whereas at nighttime, if you eat a big sweet potato or have something sweet or have a beverage, an alcoholic beverage, your body's going to struggle a whole lot more to normalize your blood sugar. Insulin, you're not as insulin sensitive as the day goes on. So that's one that's one tip that I would definitely leave your listeners with to just be strategic about how your meals are structured. And if you're going to have carbs, do it with your midday meal or earlier in the day so that your body can make better use of that insulin sensitivity. Oh, I think that's great advice. So what are some things, let's say someone started fasting, they are doing the 16-8 protocol. What are some things that someone might experience in the short term, you know, whether it's being hangry or maybe it's different things, and that you reassure people that this is normal in the mm-hmm. first few weeks? Well, I mean, and that's a great question. I think uh, it's it's important for people to understand what's normal so mm-hmm. that they can preemptively find solutions for what some of the troubleshoots can be. Um, first and foremost, a lot of people don't hydrate enough and they don't realize until they start fasting that they're not adequately hydrating. So hydration is critical along with electrolytes. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly. They both go together and you can't do one without the other. So I remind people, especially if they are coming from a higher carbohydrate diet, I think the average American's diet is 250 to 300 grams of carbs a day, which is quite a bit. If they start consuming less carbohydrates, their body will actually release these stored sugars as glycogen stores. And you as a natural process will lose some water. And with water goes sodium or salt. And so if you are not replenishing the electrolytes you're losing, you are going to feel crappy. That's when people will get headaches. They'll get dizzy. They'll get nauseous. They can't sleep well. They get muscle achiness. They generally hate me, but that's called keto flu. But that is a direct relationship to this kind of carbohydrate withdrawal slash loss of electrolytes because they've gone lower carbs. So that's one one piece that's really important. Secondly, understanding what is a clean versus a dirty fast. That's really important. And, and there's a lot of discrepancy in the intermittent fasting space. I tend to align myself with Jen Stevens, who I know you've had on the podcast as a good friend of mine. And I really believe that if you're going to fast, do it right, or at least know what the right things are. You may need, while you're transitioning to fasting, you may need to put your training wheels on much like, you know, little kids are learning how to ride a bike. They don't generally go off on their bike without training wheels. Some people need to add some fat to their coffee or to their tea. And by this, I don't mean copious amounts. I'm referring to if you're going to, if you need this, a lot of people don't, but if you need this, you need to realize that you know it's not copious amounts of MCT oil, which is this special kind of fat, um, medium chain triglycerides that is uh, digested a little bit differently than a lot of other fats. If you put a teaspoon of that into your coffee because you're really hangry, 
uh, you know, trying to get up to opening up your fasting window um, and your feeding window, that's okay on the short term. But long term, you really want to stick to black coffee, add some salt if you feel like it's too bitter, bitter teas like green tea, black tea, etc., or water with electrolytes. So recognizing, you know, what are your safe zones? What can you consume while you're fasted? But in terms of symptoms people can experience, I touched on some of them. Headache is common because people are dehydrated. Dizziness if they're not properly hydrated, especially if they go from a seated to a standing position. Some people just get achy. Some people will, uh, you know, feel nauseous, and they could be nauseous because they are restructuring their meals and they're consuming more healthy fats. And nausea to me almost always is a reflection of gallbladder uh, needs, gallbladder support. You know, a lot of people think it's normal to be constipated, and I tell people all the time. It is never normal to be constipated. That is, there's a symptom of something not adequately being supported in your body. And so a lot of people, when they increase their healthy fats because they're trying to restructure their meals, so they're focused on protein and healthy fats, their gallbladder, uh, which houses bile, which is a substance that helps to break down and emulsify fats, if it's viscous because it hasn't really been tapped into, if you've been doing low-fat, non-fat for years and years and years, your gallbladder very likely uh, is just not being is not being used as effectively as it could be. So I find that for many, many people, what they really need to do is they have to add things like digestive bitters. Bitters are a naturally occurring product. You know, Moonshine is a company that I like. I am not affiliated with them. They produce a really nice product. So gallbladder supportive products or foods like shaved beets. Yes, beets are not low carb, but shaved beets on a salad, you know, sometimes carrots or artichoke hearts are also very bile supportive, you know, making sure you're consuming some raw vegetables, like, you know, two salads a day, I have all sorts of tips and tricks. So sometimes people get constipated. And obviously, that's not a fun thing. Occasionally, people will complain of sleep disturbances. And that could be for a variety of reasons. I think we are an overstimulated culture because we're on electronics, you know, we're exposed to blue, we're bathed in blue light all day long. And much like I'm sure with your babies and your young children, you probably have a nighttime ritual for them. There's a certain process they go through before bed because it's reminding them it's time to go to bed. These are the five things I do. I used to do that with my boys. Now my kids can stay up later than I can, which is sad. Um, (laughs) But adults need to be the same way. We have to find rituals, whether it's blue blockers, whether it's you drink chamomile tea, Maybe, you know, you take a sleep aid, like maybe you take L-theanine or Seraphos or some of these other products that are fairly clean that you can consume at the tail end of your feeding window prior to bed that kind of remind your body it's time to go to sleep. So I think those tend to be the most common ones. Um, I find the hangry situation generally gets worked out um, if people are not trying to be too aggressive with their fasting window too quickly. I always say that if you're still dependent on glucose primarily to fuel your brain as opposed to ketones, that's when you see hangry. I always think of children. Like children sometimes don't have the ability to articulate that they're hungry. They just get grumpy and cranky. And adults can be the same way. It's just not as socially acceptable. So You want to just make sure you're really strategic about how you are fasting and feasting and determining what works best for you. Like I said earlier, bio-individuality rules, 
and what works for your spouse may not work for you or your best friend. And that is totally okay. I think that's so, so true because as you and I both know, we run into all sorts of different types of people and how they intermittent fast. And you'll find someone and it's a 180 from how you're doing it, but it works for them. And that's great. Mm -hmm. And what works for you might not work for me, but there are some kind of tried and true tips. And that's what you're sharing today, which is so helpful. Hey friends, it's Bet. If you are enjoying today's podcast, I really hope you will join me every week for what I hope you find are inspiring interviews and bold content on topics like family and career and health. And can I also ask you a favor? Can you press that subscribe button and write a review if you like what you hear today? By doing those things, you are helping me get the word out. And I truly would be ever, ever so grateful. It also allows you to be the first to know when new content arrives. So please subscribe today. Now let's get back to our guest. What about exercise? Do you find that you notice people get more into exercise after they've started IF? Do you encourage people to exercise as they're intermittent fasting? What have you found is the is the best approach? And I know we're all different in this. Mm-hmm. You know, I I exercise fasted regularly, have no issue with it. However, when I first started doing it, there was a lot of mental block there. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't believe that. I could go without eating breakfast and go have a hard workout. Like it took me a while to get there and believe it, but it was more mental than it was physical mm-hmm. really for me. What's been your experience? Well, I think it depends on where people are starting from at the beginning. So if someone says to me, you know, I've been exercising for years and years and years and, um, you know, with trepidation, I want to try to fast and go lift. I'm like, awesome. Go do it. Go see how you mm-hmm. feel. I think people are surprised. They actually feel pretty good. I encourage everyone to be physically active. It is less about how hard you work out and more about when you do and do not eat that impacts the way that we look. Um, And that's completely contrary to what I was taught growing up. It was like, oh, you have to exercise every single day because that's what keeps you on maintenance. No, it's not. It's what we put in our mouths or when we choose to eat that has more to do with it. So if someone has been sedentary and they start fasting, I always encourage them to be active. And active could be taking a walk. It could be getting in the pool. It could be playing tennis. It could be riding your bike. So encouraging everyone to be physically active, I think, should be the mainstay of our existence. Recognizing that you know, if you look at the research, the people that I worry about that don't, that, that intermittent fast are like people who are true athletes or professional athletes. Because I just don't think most of them, given their training intensity, are going to be able to get enough nutrition or macros in during their feeding window. Those are the, the and, and that's a very small subsect of the population. Like actually, I was reading an article the other day that was talking about, a maybe it was a, it wasn't Tom Brady, but it was someone at that level. I mean, someone who's like an elite athlete. And when they're not in training season, they fast. When they are in training season, they don't fast. And so I think that really speaks to the fact that you have to adjust, you know, based on what's going on in your lifestyle at that time. But the average person can absolutely positively exercise fasted. And I say average person, meaning most people, not every single person. It's really important that they stay hydrated. People always ask about pre-workouts, which I think are complete garbage. I'm like, no one should be wasting their money on pre-workouts. What you could do is drink some coffee before you go to the gym. If you feel good doing that on an empty stomach, 
or have your green tea. Like I drink green tea every single day. (laughs) I'm not a coffee drinker. And that is quote unquote, my pre-workout, if you want to call it that. So I I think it's really on a case by case basis, but most, if not all people, they're surprised at how good they feel. And then they don't want to eat before they go to the gym because they don't want to feel bloated. They don't want to feel like they're digesting. They don't want to feel like blood is, you know, shunted to their gut as opposed to their skeletal muscles while they're working out. And I think with very few exceptions, obviously if someone were going to do like a hardcore CrossFit workout, they may feel differently. Maybe they, you know, want to do that later in the day and they want to have a small piece of fruit. That's fine. But we have exactly what our bodies need to fuel us through a workout. In fact, I, I was reading someone the other day who was an endurance athlete, uh, middle-aged endurance athlete, and they never brought food with them when they went on these endurance runs or endurance bike rides. And I think that really speaks to the fact like our bodies in most instances have plenty of fuel to get us through a 30 to 60 minute workout without having to eat something. Like I, my husband has been intermittent fasting for many years. He's very physically active, very fit for being an early 50-ish guy. And he went out on a trail ride cycle with a couple buddies. And he said they all stopped halfway through this ride. And uh, you know he was drinking water. And he said they all picked out like someone had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Someone else had goo. And he, they were all like, well, why aren't you eating? He's like, I don't need to eat. And they said, why? Right. What do you mean? <laughs> he just said, I have plenty of body fat to be able to fuel through the rest of my cycling. And they were just amazed and stunned and and just in awe of what he was doing. So for the listeners, most, if not all of us have plenty of fuel to get through our workouts. We don't have to consume a protein shake before our workout and immediately afterwards. It's a 24-hour cycle. Like I had an opportunity to interview uh, Dr. Gabrielle Glyons. And so she's this renowned muscle-centric medicine physician. And she talks about that. Like your body, it's it's what you consume in a 24-hour period. So it's less about getting in 40 grams of protein powder right after you exercise than it is that making sure during the course of your day, you've had an adequate amount of protein to be able to create this muscle protein synthesis that so many of us desire, which I think is completely contrary to what we were all taught, you know, even years ago, it's like, oh, you got to eat before and after exercise. No, you don't. You totally don't. I think that's so huge. And I really hope people were listening because I think number one, what you're saying is that if someone is looking to get healthy, Mm -hmm. metabolically healthy, that their first step should not be go to the gym for two hours every day, Mm -hmm. that No, the goal is, yes, we all want to be active. Activity is, there is so many benefits. But the first issue is what's on our plate and when we were eating. Bottom line, bottom line. And then the other point you made is that people can be confident that you can exercise fasted. And I love hearing other medical professionals emphasize this because Mm -hmm. people ask me all the time, they're like, well, but how do you, I, I, I thought I had to have a pre-workout and I like you think they're total garbage mm-hmm. and don't waste your money. So I think that's, that's wonderful. So let's say people are fasting, they're having success and then they hit some barriers or they hit a plateau and they do have maybe more weight to lose and different things. What are your top, you know, couple tweaks that you might might make for them, whether is it what they're eating? Is it the timing? What are, what are some tweaks you make when someone says, but Cynthia, I was doing so good. And now I've, I've kind of hit a plateau. What do I do? 
It's a great question and one that I am asked often. Uh, I think it, <laughs> yeah, it always starts with, uh, you know, once someone is fat adapted, they have to change up what they're doing. They cannot, much like we don't eat the same exact meals every single day, although I could eat bacon and eggs every day. We don't eat the same meals every day. We don't do the exact same exercise program every single day. Our bodies thrive on variety. So changing up your routine. Maybe you need a 24-hour fast. Maybe you need a longer fast. Maybe you need a shorter fast. So varying that fasting window. Next is really being honest with yourself about your macros. Now, I find most women don't consume enough protein. That's number one. Most women overconsume portions of healthy fats because it's so easy to do. I mean, think about how easy it is to eat more than one serving of macadamia nuts or an avocado or cheese. Nuts and, av- nuts and cheese in particular can undo a lot of the good that we do during our day-to-day basis. So not enough protein, watching your portion sizes of healthy fats, eating the wrong carbs. Now, as unsexy as this topic is, um, if you are a middle-aged woman, meaning you are north of 35 or 40, and you are entering perimenopause, it kind of stinks, but the reality of your circumstances is that you absolutely positively cannot just eat whatever you want. And that includes portions of carbohydrates. So I tend to be someone that recommends gluten and grains free if you're really trying to figure out what's going on. Um, Gluten at a minimum because of how gluten is treated. It's played with glyphosate and other types of pesticides, which we know punch holes into our small intestine. So really looking at the quality of carbohydrates, I'd rather someone have sweet potato or squash over bread and pasta and rice. Like that's another distinction. But you can have carbohydrates. I'm not anti-carb, but it's portions of carbs. It may be that you have a third of a cup or half a cup of a particular carbohydrate. You just don't get to eat anything you want anymore. It's it's unfortunate. I'm in that age range. I just now accept it. I'm much happier now that I've accepted that. So macros are definitely a piece of that. Number three, how is your sleep quality? If you cannot sleep through the night, do not fast. I see so many women that in particular, more so than men, that struggle with sleep and then they want to add in intermittent fasting. And I'm like, listen, dial in on the sleep piece get that completely nailed down and then add in intermittent fasting because we're still talking about hormetic stressors. Hormetic stressors are stressors that in the right amount create beneficial stress to our body. So cold exposure, a la Wim Hof, um, heat exposure like infrared saunas, high intensity interval training, intermittent fasting, high quality sleep, strength training, et cetera. Those are all intermittent fasters, but in not the right amounts, it can be too much for our bodies. And so sleep is critical. You have to sleep through the night. If you're not sleeping through the night, do not intermittent fast. I also think about stress management. I hate to keep harping on this particular age group, but middle age is when if you are not taking care of yourself, it can be problematic. So I'm talking about people that overexercise, they don't eat enough food, they don't get good quality sleep. They really are very, very hard on themselves they have a lot of stress and they don't mitigate ways to alleviate or improve their stress. And by this, I mean like meditation, walks in nature, connecting with loved ones, hugging your dog, your significant other, your spouse, your kids, anyone. It helps release things like oxytocin, which is this mother hormone, but is absolutely critical for bonding. It makes us feel good. But actively managing and mitigating stress in our day-to-day lives is a non-negotiable uh, I know with you know the global pandemic, there is not one woman listening that has not had more stress in their life over the last year than they did the year before, without question. It's how do totally. we mitigate it? And for many of us, we are sympathetic dominant, which means we are in this fight or flight mode all the time. 
So we want to do things that will get us out of that, you know, fight or flight mode. We want to be in the rest and repose. You know, when we're stressed out, we cannot digest our food. We won't detoxify properly. We sure as heck are not telling our brains that we're not under stress. So those are a couple things that I usually hone in on. And then obviously there's more than that. Could it be underlying food sensitivities? Are you exposed to toxins? Um, I find for a lot of people, it's hormonal imbalances that start to become problematic in middle age, you know, thyroid, sex hormones, uh, you know, we touched on cortisol, you know, knowing your lab work, really, really important that you learn as much as possible so that you can be your own best advocate when you are working and kind of trying to mitigate uh, your day-to-day life. Like those are some strategies, but I mean, I know I just did like a huge oversimplification, but each one of those could be a whole podcast episode in of itself, but really diving in and being honest with yourself. Like most women don't sleep enough. They don't eat enough protein and they do the wrong kinds of exercise. And so that can really undermine their, their efforts and, and make it harder for them to, to lose weight and to get you know, to get the results that they're looking for. I love that you honed in as well on nuts and cheese, because Mm -hmm. I think I run into that a lot. And I find personally that when I've had plateaus or when I've struggled, it's because I'm gravitating towards too much nuts and cheese, Mm -hmm. really at the end of the day. And I find that many women, and I've said this on so many podcast episodes, and so I'm a broken record, but I feel like women especially, we that's the things we gravitate towards more versus, you know, an animal-based protein like chicken or Mm -hmm. eggs. For some reason, I don't, I don't know why, but we do. And then we, that can be a really good reason we're not making progress Mm -hmm. because it's really easy to overeat those foods. Totally. and I can, I can no, eat a pound of yeah, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I would say five years ago, I gave up dairy, uh, largely because I suspected I had a sensitivity. And then when I gave it up, I, I realized that was indeed the case. So I've been dairy free for about five years. And, uh, you know, it was very hard for me to moderate eating a portion of cheese. I mean, one ounce of cheese is not a lot. I mean, it's a ridiculously small amount. And so sometimes it's easier for us just to say, you know, and it could be any type of food. I don't do well with cookies or I don't do well with cake or, you know, because I don't feel like I have good control over myself, I'm not going to eat X, Y, or Z. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that's part of, you know, our journey is that we start to realize like, oh my gosh, maybe, maybe I'm just not meant to eat these things. Maybe this is my body's way of telling me if I'm sensitive to it or building up an intolerance, or it's just too darn hard to portion it for myself, then maybe I shouldn't be eating it. Yeah, and I think that's just being an adult and and owning that. And I know people sometimes that you I feel like people are critical of anyone who will say, "Oh, you you really shouldn't have this." Oh, well, hey, why are why are you telling me that? And yet they're the same people who are saying, "I'm stuck" or "I can't figure out what's wrong." And you know, I talk about alcohol a lot. You know, I love to have a glass of wine, but I have to be a big kid and realize that if I overconsume, it's going to stall my health results. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, and the same goes with dairy or anything else that that you might be experiencing. And I think that's that's so true. So you kind of open your window around kind of lunchtime. Is that what I'm hearing? What's your fasting and eating lifestyle? It sounds like you kind of f- focus on protein first. Can you share a little bit more about your individual fasting? Yeah. And I I do really genuinely like to vary how I fast. So I generally have one 24-hour fast a week. 
if not two. And I find for myself, what I like to do is have a feast day the day before, meaning it's a day that I may have a 12 hour feeding window. I may have uh, more of a breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, maybe four hours in between each meal. And I always focus on protein quality and healthy fats. That's what works best for my body. I tend to hover in the low carb ketogenic space that works for me. Uh, I'm also very mindful of uh, you know, ensuring I have at least one higher carb day per week and high carb for me could be 75 grams. So I'm, I, I do very well in that kind of lower carbohydrate space. Um, it doesn't mess up my hormones and generally my sleep is, is excellent. So my fasting window on most days is somewhere between 16 to 20 hours. It depends on, you know, what my schedule is. I try not to do business things before 11 AM so that I have an opportunity to get my family up, get my kids settled get an exercise in, you know, kind of do some uh, errands if need be. And then I start my day. And so ideally I would love, I love breaking my fast around 11 AM. I will sit and I genuinely truly believe in digestive rest. And I truly believe in not being distracted by other things when I eat, you know, everyone in my family, my husband and I both work from home. My kids are in school from home. So all of us eat lunch at different times. We come together at dinner time, but it's, it's designed to be a very peaceful, completely the antithesis of what life was like when I was in clinical medicine. And I would sometimes be standing in the ICU eating a protein bar, which is disgusting when I think about it now. And so I typically will break my fast with a meal. Uh, sometimes it might be, if I'm on the go, it might be a protein shake uh, with some healthy fats in it to keep me satiated. And then I'll officially have a meal maybe two or three hours later. And then I try to close down my feeding window at least three hours prior to my bedtime. So I, I prefer to eat dinner five or six o'clock at the latest. Now that was definitely uh, cha- more challenging when uh, we were not in COVID restrictions because I have two teenagers and inevitably I was either at a football field or at a swim event with one, if not both of them. And so sometimes I was either eating a meal in the car, which I don't advocate anyone do, but I don't like to eat dinner at seven o'clock at night. That's just not my comfortable, you know, place, especially because I tend to go to bed, you know, by nine 30 or 10, I like to be in bed and, and kind of getting off to sleep. So that's my typical thing. But I, but I think for most women, uh, you know, we've gotten so focused on not eating enough protein. And so I always say to people, if you're having three ounces of fish, push it to four. If you're having four ounces steak, put a shit to five ounces. And so there's little ways that aren't going to leave you feeling stuffed, but are going to give your body a bit more fuel that you can get through your day. And, and one thing that I think is important, both for men and women, is that as we're getting older, one of the things that's really critically important is that sarcopenia, which is muscle wasting with age, is going to happen. But you want to do everything you can to ensure that you maintain your lean muscle mass because muscle helps you burn it's a glucose reservoir. So when you eat food, it helps you. It's a, I always say it's like a, a waste service for all that, that sugar that you consume, either in the form of carbohydrates or protein, because your body can make carbs from protein. It's called gluconeogenesis. But it's also, you know, the more lean muscle mass you have, the less body fat you're going to have. So I, I like to remind people that there's this thought process that you lose muscle as you get older, and then you start developing more body fat. And I'm like, okay, well, you have to eat enough protein and then you have to put enough stress on the muscle itself to continue keeping it uh, growthful. And so that's where, you know, the sleep piece comes in, the strength training comes in, all of those components really do make a difference. And I think for many, many people, whether they're men or women, 
the people that are aging well and doing well are the ones that are proactive about ensuring they're hitting their macros, they're getting in that exercise, they're getting good quality sleep, they're doing some autophagy. So, you know, they're giving their bodies this opportunity for uh, to kind of break down and recycle uh, disease and disordered cells, get rid of them. And so only the strong that survive. But that's typically, that's, that's a good kind of bird's eye perspective on what I do kind of day to day, week to week. I love it. And I think it's so helpful to hear how other people do it. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that we all have to be the same, but it's it gives us insight of being like, oh, I should try that. Or, oh, I like that, that idea. Mm-hmm. I know we're coming close to the end of our interview. I did have a listener question on to me recently, and I wanted your, your perspective. So when I'm on my period, I don't have any issues with fasting, mm-hmm. but some people are always curious, do I do anything different during that mm-hmm. time of the month? Do you have any advice or what do you like to share? What's been your experience? Yeah, I think the five to seven days preceding your cycle. So if you know that your cycle comes at specific intervals and it's fairly regular, five to seven days, you want to shorten that fasting window. I truly believe it is the one you know week in a woman's menstrual cycle where she needs to not be as rigid about, you know, I'm fasting 16, 18, 20 hours. No, no, 12 to 13 hours. You want to increase your high quality carbohydrates, whether that's squash or sweet potato, because you are a little more insulin sensitive, you know, that week. And then as soon as you start bleeding, you can go back to your normal fasting schedule. And I find that that helps mitigate cravings. People don't feel like they're depleting their bodies quite as much. Uh, and there are definitely, you know, quite a few other, you know, female health experts that are very aligned with that as well. And if obviously if a woman's menopausal, then they have a bit more flexibility in, in how they, they fast. But I do think for the, you know, fertile, you know, still menstruating female, you need to be mindful of that. And the other piece about menstrual cycles is that I like to think of a menstrual cycle as another barometer with which for us to determine if fasting is working well for our bodies. So if someone has a wonky period for a cycle or two when they start fasting, I'm not worried about that. But if your period goes away or stays away and you're not pregnant, then that could be a sign that it's too much stress for your body. So really tapping in intrinsically to your menstrual cycles and how you feel is is absolutely critical with fasting. But great question. And would it be an option if they did a longer fast, if they said, oh, but Cynthia, I do a 16-hour, but maybe just up what they're eating, or maybe instead of doing more of a, uh, maybe they're doing two full meals in their 16-8, or do you really say, no, I really would like you to to shorten that to the 12 to 13? Yeah, just for the five to seven days preceding their periods, I, okay. I actually prefer that they do that. And and I know that there are a lot of people on social media that have strong opinions, you know, one way or the other about totally right uh, about these things. But I've come to find that if women do that, then they have much greater success, not only with compliance with fasting, but also, you know, they're sleeping well, they have plenty of energy, you know, really checking in with yourself. That's really, really important and being honest about what is or is not working. I think that's wonderful advice because we need to stay in tune with our bodies, bottom line. So Cynthia, how do people connect with you if they want to find you on social media, go to your website? What's the best way to connect with you? Well, I have a great podcast called Everyday Wellness. That is a great way to connect. That's also off of based off of my website, www. CynthiaThurlow.com. I am active on Instagram, Twitter, and I have a private Facebook group that is for anyone. It's a free group. It's called Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle backslash my name. 
that anyone is welcome to join. We have, uh, you know, we post content Monday through Friday. We do all sorts of uh, fun giveaways associated with the podcast. And it's a really nice, nurturing community of humans, both men and women. So it's not just for women, but uh, we do have quite a few men in there as well. Great. Well, I hope we all go find Cynthia and support the amazing work that you're doing and information that you are sharing with so many. And to close today, Cynthia, what is your bold advice that you'd like to end? We always like to ask our guests that. So what's your bold advice for our listeners today? Oh, goodness. I think, you know, the best thing is to question, you know, I, I have always been that person prior to my my parents crazy. But I think if we don't evolve, shift and change throughout our lifetimes, that we're really missing out on opportunities to expand our thinking. So, you know, from my perspective, I have a big birthday coming this summer. And so if I subscribe to limiting beliefs, I wouldn't be where I am. So I really encourage everyone to, you know, give fasting a try. It doesn't necessarily have to work for everyone. But eating less often is such an amazing way to honor your body, honor the way that our bodies are designed to thrive and do it in a way that, you know, you can do it on your own terms. That's the beautiful thing. Each one of us can have a different practice and honor our bodies and honor our hormones and honor our lives in in very beneficial ways. Oh, I love ending on that advice. Well, Cynthia, thank you for your time and I wish you all the best and, and happy early birthday. Thank you to you as well. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to write a review and push that subscribe button. I also hope you will come hang out with me on Instagram, Facebook, and my new website, betlucas.com. And remember, friends, be you boldly. The world needs you. You.